Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Two controversies have well-liked members of state government stepping down. There's something fishy in the Bloomfield water. And why is everyone leaving Connecticut? Or why would anyone stay in Connecticut? We'll discuss. You can join the conversation in the wheelhouse. Our weekly news roundtable, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We're going to start on the presidential campaign trail, though, where there's a lot of new news. I want to welcome in our panelists. Colin McEnroe, as always, is here. He's the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankosky. Susan Bigelow is back with us. She's columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. She's releasing a new edition of her science fantasy novel, Broken, coming up soon. That's right. Susan, welcome back to the show. How much of it is actually based on Connecticut politics? Oh, all of it. There's Connecticut (laughs) references everywhere. Everywhere. title's kind of a giveaway. (laughs) It is. And we welcome back to the show Ben Duvall. He's a freelance political writer and consultant. He's launching a brand new website called Ben There that's coming out soon. Ben, good to see you once again. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Donald Trump won the Nevada caucuses last night, uh, now winning three states in a row. Uh, NPR's Mara Eliason says, well, some of the obvious. This isn't a typical election year, and there are many Republicans who think either A, it's just not possible for Trump to be the nominee, or B, it would be terrible for the party if he became the nominee. Including Lindsey Graham, of course, who was running for president for a while, who said it might be better if a Democrat wins than if Donald Trump wins. Uh, first of all, Colin, I mean, what do you make of this? It, it, every single time we come to another one of these um, uh, these caucuses or one of these primaries, we, we think, well, maybe something will change. And, and here we have Donald Trump once again rolling to this enormous victory. Yes. I mean, it. Uh, you know, a casino owner winning in Nevada is a little bit like a sea captain winning in Gloucester or something. I mean, it really is. He should be in his <laughs> element there. We should be surprised if he doesn't win. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I think one of the shifts that we, we're seeing now particularly in coverage and in the way we conceptualize this election, is the shift from polling math to delegate math, right? We're gonna, we now have a big enough pile of delegates so that you can start looking at that and understanding how it's going to work or not, no, under, not, not, let me take that back. <laughs> Guessing, making wild, improbable, easily violated guesses about what we think is going to happen from here on, here on in. But so, so here on, from here on in, you know, I mean, Trump's running a very un- unconventional campaign. The rules of campaigning may be rewritten as a result of this election uh, over on the Democratic side. Uh, obviously, the delicate math has always favored Hillary Clinton and seems to do so even more. One of the things that, that does come out of yesterday, yes, of course, a casino owner who wins in Nevada, not necessarily a big deal, but a casino owner, Susan, who wins in large margins with evangelicals, uh, people who aren't necessarily predisposed to uh, love a Donald Trump, uh, who wins enormously with Latinos uh, in the state, uh, people who honestly might be predisposed not to vote for a Donald Trump who all he seems to talk about is the problems of immigration and people coming from across the Mexican border. Those are some of the things you take out of this and go, wow, it just seems to not stop. No, that's very true. Uh, every time we think, oh, this is, this is going to be the one where, where Donald Trump falls on his face like we've all been expecting him to do, and it just never happens. And the fact that he's doing well with all of these different groups, 
you got to wonder what's what's really what do these groups have in common? And it seems what they've got in common is anger, is that they're mad at the government, they're mad at the way things are going right now. And Donald Trump, either through luck or through strategy or just his own self, has managed to tap into that. And that's why I think. You know, at this point, he's in really good shape to win this thing. And, and as we, we talk later on in the program, Ben, about uh, whether or not Connecticut's primary might actually make a difference, we'll, we'll get to to that. But obviously, you know, you're a, a former Republican strategist. You talk to an awful lot of people about who the, who they're supporting for president this year. Um, what are you hearing about the appeal of Trump? Not just what you see on television from Nevada, but just from people around here that you know. Well, uh, people around here obviously are somewhat concerned because they don't think he's – let's just say he's uh, a little uncouth for the Brie and Chablis Republicans and Democrats here in Connecticut. But, you know, the fact of the matter is it's – you know, I take a little issue that people are angry uh, so much as uh, – you know, there's a lot of anecdotal reports where people go into a Sanders rally and they say, well, if Bernie doesn't get it, I'm going to vote for Trump. And I think the problem is that for a long time now, uh, 20 years really, the elected – uh, class and the you know establishment has not been listening and has not been delivering. Just go to any airport, ride any highway, look at your schools. It's been promises, 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 and people aren't they're not being delivered. Go to Flint, Michigan. You can't get a glass of water. So this is the real frustration out there. And the fact of the matter is, leaders of our country, from the local leaders right up to the top have got to start really delivering, and they got to start working together. And as you can see, the Republicans clearly are when it comes to the SCOTUS nomination. You know, they really want to work with uh, President Obama to fill the final seat on the Supreme Court. Well, <laughs> so well, you can see we've, we've learned and we're moving forward in a positive way. Well, let's actually talk about that for a minute. I mean, over the last week, there have been three big news stories that have come up that should be election issues. Uh, first, perhaps the biggest, as Ben just mentioned, has to do with the Justice Antonin Scalia's replacement on the Supreme Court. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and members of the Judiciary Committee now say that action will not be taken on a Supreme Court nomination until after the next presidential election. We, we sort of knew we were going to hear this, Colin, and then we had a couple days of maybe Republicans walking back these statements. And then Mitch McConnell comes out with a few members of the uh, the committee yesterday and says, essentially, this isn't going to happen. I mean, should this be, uh, well, should this, of course, this should be part of the presidential race. But how much is this going to be a part of what happens next with these primaries and what happens in November, given this very strong uh, stance by, by the Republicans? I think those, uh, the two parts of your question have slightly, slightly, slightly different answers. So, you know, in the, the primaries are, are kind of one thing, and it's hard to see how any Republican candidate runs in the primaries on anything other than essentially a pretty obstructionist position about the Supreme Court vacancy. Now, how that plays out in the general election is different. And, and it's usually not a big issue. It's just not the kind of deal breaker uh, that other kinds of more penetrating, close to the skin uh, issues are for voters. But to the extent that it's an issue at all, I mean, some of the Republican Senate candidates in in swing states in, in or even states that weren't even identified previously as swing states are a little jumpy about this because you start Start dealing with a whole bunch of other different voters, maybe even voters who voted for Obama last time around, although they are not, in fact, registered Democrats. There's a whole bunch of people who step in and go, well, is this, is this really the way the system is supposed to work for you? Like, you're not even really ha- allowed to have a nominee and hearings. And, you know, and, and that may, in close Senate races, be the kind of issue that, you know, that a Kelly Ayotte-type Senate candidate will not benefit from. Will not benefit from it and maybe will start to 
uh, roll back some of this rhetoric on the Republican side? I mean, at the end of the day, it's not going to make sense for some of these people who are running in tight races. What do you see uh, here, Susan? I would not be surprised if somewhere along the line – Donald Trump changes his position on this. And that seems kind of a weird thing to say right now. But here's a guy who's been able to say anything, contradict himself constantly, and has suffered nothing for it. If he is the nominee, I wouldn't be surprised to see him at least walk this back a little bit uh, just to try to appeal to the center in the general election because really – it hasn't cost him anything so far to do something, and, something like that. And, and what it could cost Donald Trump or whoever the Republican nominee could be, Ben, is, uh, you know, Republicans do not want to see enormous mobilization of Democrats in November. And one way to uh, mobilize a whole bunch of Democrats in November is to feel as though the Republican Party, whether it's the outsider part of the Republican Party or the insider part of the Republican Party, is obstructing the Constitution. Well, that's right. And I, I just don't understand the strategy at all. I mean, this, as I, I wrote on a, a, a Twitter feed, I said, you know, this is exactly the strategy that gave the Republican Party Donald Trump. I mean, they, if they don't want to, if they don't want the president to be successful in appointing a Supreme Court judge, well, they run the Senate. So, so they, they, don't, they didn't have to say anything. They could have employed their strategy without saying anything. But no, they can't help themselves. And they just get out there and they, they, they act foolish. Look, the country is one in the middle. It's a 50-50 country and you're not going to win it doing this kind of strategy. Uh, fortunately, they'll be running against probably against Hillary Clinton and she's a very flawed candidate as well. So – I don't know. I mean, it's 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 really going to be a jump ball come November. And I mean, I think that, that point there that Hillary Clinton is a flawed candidate. Yeah, she absolutely is. But this seems like a field full of flawed candidates, and that's one of the reasons why Trump has been so successful. There was there was no candidate on the Republican he, side who was not deeply flawed in some way, which is why I think that Trump's probably going to walk away with this thing. Because who is it going to be? Is it going to be Rubio? Cruz? I don't see it. The one thing that Trump has at the end of the day that a lot of people gravitate to is if he's on a stage next to Hillary Clinton, he's going to say, how much money have I gotten from those interests on Wall Street and everywhere else? That is what's going to separate him out because that's what people are really fed up with. I will say I'm actually looking forward to seeing him on a stage next to Hillary Clinton because Trump's weakness and no, what, what Trump does is when he's on stage in a debate, he dominates guys by doing the guy thing. He, he likes to put men in their place. He likes to put them in the pecking order. That's the thing that guys do a lot. But he has no idea how to deal with women. No idea. I don't know and, about that. He's oh, been married think, three times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that was they were all real successful. He's really successful, Colin. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Susan makes a great point. I mean, Trump on stage and certainly with his behavior towards Carly Fiorina makes – Rick Lazio looked like he could give etiquette lessons. Um, so, uh, and and La- the Lazio he is giving them now. By the yeah, way, probably is. is yeah, <laughs> and the Lazio thing is case in point too because you know also Hillary Clinton's been through that kind of thing before. Probably knows how to turn it to her advantage. So yeah, I mean I don't know. We're getting ahead of the narrative here, but yes, that absolutely could be an interesting subplot. I, I'll say that there are two other stories though this week that that are kind of roiling that I I, I really want to hear the candidates grapple with whether or not it's going to matter in any primary results. I just think it's important to be part of this election. One has to do with the announcement that uh, President Obama made yesterday. He's saying once again he's going to move to close the prison at Guantanamo Bay, something that he was supposed to have set in motion just as he took office uh, back in in 2008. 
Um, and then also, Colin, there's this separate but kind of connected issue having to do with whether or not the federal government should be able to hack into a phone, uh, an iPhone of, of a shooter in San Bernardino, which raises a whole bunch of questions about how much we want to stretch our liberties. In some ways, these two things are connected. And I guess I just wonder if, if these two things are going to loom over some part of this, this campaign. I, I think uh, just to take them in reverse, the, the Apple phone issue has probably a pretty short shelf life. I also I haven't heard a candidate take a position uh, on Apple's behalf. Uh, maybe I missed it, but um, I don't expect – I mean, I suppose maybe Bernie could go there, but I don't expect that to happen. I mean, I, I think for the most part, although this is a very – it's a very complicated issue. It has a lot of layers to it, um, but uh, – and, and there's a lot of posturing going on on both sides too. But it, it's, it, it, I think most people accept the notion that, that a solution can be tailored to fit the specifics of this one phone, uh, allowing the FBI to, to kind of brute force hack past the password without necessarily setting a precedent or affecting the rights of other Americans. Now, that might turn out not to be true, but I think that's probably the way it's going to go. I don't think you can run on the other side of this issue anyway, and I don't think you would give your opponent uh, an opportunity to run uh, on the law enforcement side against you of that issue. Now, the Guantanamo is, you know, it's a, it, that's an issue that people don't understand very well. The, uh, uh, they haven't understood who was in Guantanamo in the first place, uh, all the ways in which Guantanamo is a huge liability to us. I mean, I think what we've understood over the last two days is how much money it costs. But obviously, I mean, ISIS uses the iconography uh, of Guantanamo against us. It, it really is uh, an opportunity to raise bodies and, and money for them across the world. It would be great to get this thing off of our table. And I don't know, listening to the senator from uh, Colorado who's been making a lot of appearances on public radio over the last day or so, you know, the truth is they've already got a lot of these uh, Zacharias Massawi type people there in the Colorado Supermax and they are not being attacked by terrorists all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, they've got a lot of you know major figures in the world of Islamic terrorism there. And, and I don't know. I mean, it seems to me as though Yes, it has taken eight years for President Obama to do something that was an instrumental part of his initial campaign presentation to us in 2008. Um, but, but we're there now. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know how it plays out politically. It's something you could pretty easily demagogue, I suppose. And for people who have read anything about this, this Colorado Supermax, this isn't like your normal prison. This is like the sort of place they put Lex Luthor. You know, right. you just <laughs> you, you can't break out of this prison. But, but anyway, you have a thought, Susan? Yeah, um just the idea that um, that like what Colin was saying that this is this is a complicated issue. This also sort of shows the the limits of of sort of what we think the president should be able to do. Close something down like Guantanamo. It's so much more complicated, and I don't think that people understand a lot of the complexities that the president has to deal with, and they don't really want to understand at this point. Um, also, I do think like what Colin said that this is something that's very easily demagogued. Both things, uh, Guantanamo and Apple. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised to see someone come down on law enforcement side, maybe on the Republican side, um, just because the fear of terrorism is just such a powerful. Even even now, it's still such a powerful thing. Um, we got a tweet from Josh who says, uh, "We've held people not convicted with any crime for 15 years, and people continue not to give a damn. Do people give a damn now about Guantanamo Bay ban? You know, years after this, I don't think they really do. I mean, I think the Guant Guantanamo issue is." For me, it's, it looks more financial than anything else. The, the idea that if we got rid of Guantanamo, that then uh, ISIS wouldn't have a propaganda. I mean, forget, look, ISIS cuts people's heads off with dull knives. They don't care. They're going to use whatever they want. They're, they're maniacs. They need to be eliminated. 
But, uh, you know, the Guantanamo issue, as far as I'm concerned, is, you know, what, what are, I think we have to have a discussion about goals and objectives of what that place is supposed to be and what it's supposed to be doing. And what are we, what are we as a country? Are, have we evolved? I don't know if you want to say positively, but have we evolved away from certain rights that certain people should be given during military combat, what, what have you? On the phone issue, uh, I barely know how to use my iPhone, so. But the one thing I will say, <laughs> Ben's not hacking into anybody's iPhone. No, no, I'm hacking into my own if I can. <laughs> but the thing I don't understand is that there's not just one phone. Apparently, there's jurisdictions around the country where you know there's DAs. Oh, well, I got 18 sitting here in a closet. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that we really have to take a very close look at when it comes to security. Um, b- before we move too far off, off the Republicans, um, I, I just want to quickly uh, talk about this issue of Donald Trump and the media. You know, Donald Trump's campaign has upended so many things. Um, we see his relationship with uh, various members of the media being very tense, and sometimes they're very cozy, like with MSNBC's Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. Here's some dialogue captured during commercial breaks when Trump was on set with a pair. Oh, okay. do you don't want me to do um, the ones with the... Um, we really have to get some questions. That's right. Nothing, nothing too hard, Mika. Okay. Okay. And then Mika Brzezinski later told the Huffington Post she was talking to per, her producer here. What, do we have one more segment. One more segment, and then we're good. Thank you for doing this. Okay. I'm doing it because I, I said you, know, you, get, you get great ratings in a race. Mm-hmm. Me, I get nothing. <laughs> you get great ratings in a race. I get nothing. I mean, okay. And, and whether or not, Colin, this was actually uh, crosstalk that had nothing to do with Donald Trump. There is um, a visible coziness about Donald Trump with certain members of the media, including the uh, esteemed Morning Joe team, that seems to just. Um, sit in a way that allows Donald Trump to even further get away with things that no other candidate I've ever seen has been able to get away with. Am I making too much of this? No, you're not. I mean, I resent you having played that clip without any regard for my blood pressure. But um, <laughs> so, I mean, and I'm a big believer in the in the freedom of the press, but I really I think they should be federally required to occasionally scroll up on that screen. This is not a real journalism enterprise. This is Morning Joe. Uh, I mean, the clubbiness extends far beyond Donald Trump. Uh, I will never forget watching uh, Senator, former Senator Dodd appear on behalf of the Stop Online Piracy Act. And at the end of the interview, Mika Brzezinski said, after them and not having asked him any significant or substantial substantial or certainly not confrontational questions saying, say hi to Jackie for me, which is not typically what news people say. You know, I mean, that's a sign to the world. Oh, this is a club. This is not journalism. So I would throw them out as an outlier. But yeah, for example, on Saturday night, the um, the level of amusement and happiness among the CNN analysis crew, because obviously Trump is he's right. He's good for ratings. He's he gives all of us you know, material to work with. I mean, he, he understands that this is a symbiotic relationship. Van Jones, the former uh, Obama administration official, exploded. He was so tired of listening to them <laughs> chuckle and chortle. And he said, you know, really, we're becoming, we're adapting to absurdity. You know, that to the degree that we act as though, you know, this is some kind of normal situation with a normal candidate saying the things that candidates say, which this is not. You know, we are sort of doing the proverbial cooking of the lobster by turning up the, the heat, you know, one degree every hour. <laughs> Adapting to absurdity. I don't, I don't know. I mean, when I watch Morning Joe, I think Gwen Eiffel. I mean, that's what I think. It's the same thing. It's right. interchangeable. <laughs> yeah. it's a, um, but but, but the, the thing about Trump, though, that I, I really don't think enough people talk about is why didn't or why haven't all the other candidates picked up the phone? Why don't they ma- – every time he gets on, they should call in and say, hey, I want to talk. 
because they have a right to, but they don't. And they don't because they're overmanaged by these overpaid, overinflated egos and consultants who don't allow candidates to just get out there and have at it. And the fact of the matter is that's why he's dominated the media presence because all these other guys are sitting there cowering, looking at the micro-targeting. Meanwhile, they're getting filleted because they're not getting on the air and saying who they are what they're going to do, and how they're going to be the best candidate. Yeah, and I think there's something to that, the idea that Trump is authentic, quote-unquote, authentic. Um, <laughs> what, whether or not he actually is, I mean, here's the thing. Trump is an entertainer. He's, he blurs the lines between entertainer and uh, politician more than anybody since Ronald Reagan. And he's really good at this. He's almost, he really is part of the media instead of somebody who supposedly is in either opposition to it or under scrutiny from it. That's why you get all this clubbiness. And yeah, uh, it's, it's really, it's so disturbing to watch it happen. Uh, and it does explain some of the things about why Trump is getting away with all this well, nonsense. Well, it didn't just happen, remember. We brought it on because for too long we've allowed people in elective office to say things and not execute them. And that's the problem. And when you go to a Trump voter or a Sanders voter and say, well, wait a minute, you can't do that. They haven't done this. or They, they go, yeah, well, show me what your guys have done. And then they go to the airport, they drive the highways, they go to the schools, et cetera. So that's why you have a Trump. That's why you have a Sanders. There's no two ways about it. That's the bottom I do, line. I do think, though, that we have to I, – I feel as though we're not doing our job right here and that what has happened – I think Van Jones is right. Uh, and I think things are getting said in this campaign that ordinarily would attract a lot of scrutiny. Now, um, in a couple, a couple of days before last Saturday, for example, Donald Trump gave a speech in which he uh, described the, a practice that he uh, – uh, ascribed to General John J. Pershing that he would line up 50 Islamic prisoners in the Philippines and shoot 49 of them with bullets tipped with pig's blood and send the last one back to his Muslim confrere saying there's more of that. Where that came from, well, first of all, that's basically historians don't think that's really true. That's this kind of, you know, the thing that gets debunked on Snopes all the time is the thing that Trump just puts right in his speeches mm-hmm. uh, and just assumes, you know, it's, and he actually says, says in that speech, uh, it's not in a lot of the history books because they don't want you to know it. No, it's not in a lot of the history books because it didn't happen. That's why. But also, that's not a basis for a policy towards the Islamic world. If you're running for president of the United States and you give a speech like that, that's the message you want to send to Islam. This, we're going to, you know, Ben says, you know, these, these people uh, who who are in office don't uh, execute things. Well, Trump wants to execute things. He wants to execute he, people uh, with bullets tipped with pig's blood. And that, I mean... That's wrong. Yes, right. And, but and, we and don't there should have... be an outcry when, some, when somebody gives a speech like that. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. But the fact is we don't have a plan on how to deal with ISIS. I mean, I, they, they, I still don't see it. I don't see a plan on... How, how are we going to better incorporate Muslim society with our society, which we do a pretty good job compared to the rest of the world, just go to Germany. But, I mean, that's, I think, the frustration people have is, and Colin's exactly right, I mean, that statement that, that Trump made was ludicrous. But the fact of the matter is we don't, the, the standard person who's just working, you know, compared to what? You say in the absence of a real right. plan, the Donald Trump the plan, plan sounds sounds like a plan. What's the plan? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to quickly go through some of the math that might make Connecticut potentially, I don't know, a state that could matter in the primaries. Eh, probably not. We're talking with Ben Duvall, who's a freelance political writer and consultant. Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com and our own Colin McEnroe. We're in the wheelhouse where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Denkoski. It's Wednesday, so it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined in The Wheelhouse today by Ben Duvall, Susan Bigelow, and our own Colin McEnroe. Colin, what's on your show today? We are going to do, a, it, it fits a little bit into our conversation, we're going to do a sort of cross-disciplinary look at our love for underdogs, whether they're sports or political or underdogs in fiction. You know, what's the psychology uh, that brings us to love an underdog, which, of course, Donald Trump doesn't want us to be anymore. You know, we haven't been great for a long time. He's going to make us great again. we got we got to start winning. So we're talking underdogs this afternoon at 1 o'clock. Quickly, Colin, let, let's go through some of the, the math that maybe gets us to a place where Connecticut could be relevant again in our primary. I mean, you wrote about this in, in your Sunday column in the Hartford Current. And, of course, so much has changed in just the last couple of days because of, you know, a, a fairly resounding uh, Hillary Clinton victory in Nevada. But is there, is there something to the notion? that we could get to an April 26th primary in Connecticut, and it could actually be, you know, useful. It could matter. Probably more likely on the Republican side at this point than the Democratic side. That would be my guess. But let me just, and this is really boring, so I won't dwell on it too much. But so back in 2000, Ben was uh, among the leaders of a McCain insurgency here in Connecticut. And what happened was they were, they knew that if they got one more vote, basically, than George W. Bush, they got all the delegates. And that's exactly what happened. They went down to Philadelphia uh, with blue, you know, blue war paint uh, and stuff like that. And, uh, didn't we get them warmly received. Yeah, they, yes, I was with you. I remember. So, um, so, so that's how it used to work. Doesn't work that way anymore. The Republicans now have an incredibly complicated hybrid system, um, and I won't go into too many details, other than to say that uh, Donald Trump could come in and get a lot of delegates because, we're, although we're not winner take all. You can win a lot of delegates if you win more than 50 percent of the vote. Uh, Some of the other delegates get allocated based on your performance in congressional districts. I I, I mean, I I now know the rules. I'm not going to describe them to you. They're complicated. The the greater likelihood is that um, however many candidates there are left in the race by April 26, which is Melania Trump's birthday uh, and also the uh, Republican primary in Connecticut – um, they will. It'll be apportioned among them. So this oh, this is also true on the Democratic side. This uh, and so proportional voting is supposed to winner take all. It's basically a pretty good thing, right? And it, it allows um, p- candidates to stay in the race longer because you don't get skunked. You know, you go into a state even if you lose, you walk out with some fabulous parting gifts. So <clears throat> there's kind of that. Um, it, I, my guess is that proportional voting can keep Bernie Sanders alive longer. But ultimately, because of superdelegates and the Democrats have more superdelegates, Hillary Clinton really did. The delegate math favors her. I'm guessing that by April 26th, this is not going to be a competitive Democratic primary. Let me just say one more thing about this because this is something I didn't write about. Because there's a whole other set of questions, and that set of questions is who are the delegates? Who do the delegates turn out to be? I haven't had a chance to read the Republican rules on this now uh, yet, but uh, on each side, especially the Republicans, it's a very interesting question if, in fact, you go into the convention without a dispositive winner. So uh, because then you have second ballots, at which point the delegates are free to do as they please. So it becomes very interesting at that point to know who your delegates are and what they're likely to do. And that's, that, that's something that I know less about, but it's certainly something worth watching uh, in between now and the summer convention. So, so Susan, uh, Colin said that was going to be boring, and it's not boring to me at all. It's, it's fascinating. And the reason it's fascinating to me is it's a conversation that I've had several times on the air with uh, Denise Merrill, the Secretary of the State, and her predecessor, um, the former Secretary of State, Susan Beiswitz, and I will continue to have probably as long as I live, which which goes something like this. He just took five minutes explaining the labyrinthine system 
to uh, figure out who won or who took delegates away from a primary on the Republican side versus the Democratic side, completely different rules. We, the voters, and we, the citizens, whether or not we are allowed to vote in these things, have to pay for them. But yet the system is so complex and obscure to everyone, there's no way of knowing what impact we'll actually have. Is it possible that that could ever change, or should we start to mount a campaign that it would change because it seems ridiculous with a capital R? Of course it's ridiculous. Other countries are looking at us, seeing this this bizarre, drawn-out process. No other country has anything like this, where we have many, many, many months before the election, we have state-by-state-by-state-by-state primaries that have very strange rules, and all of this just comes out of custom. It's all evolved over time. It, you know, back 100 years ago, primaries rarely ever happened. It was all about the convention. It was all about convention floor fights and all that kind of stuff. This the cigar smoke filled back room, that sort of thing. So all of this has evolved over time into this Byzantine system of rules and strangeness. And at this point, I don't see it changing because everyone's accustomed to it. It would really take a disaster. And maybe Trump is that disaster. I don't know. But it it would really take a disaster for it to change at this point. uh, Ben, the the land of steady and incredibly stupid habits for a long time? What do you think? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, look, uh, the primary system is not going to change. There's too much money in it, right? New Hampshire, Iowa, Connecticut. I don't know. We don't have a lot. But I— I, I think the whole system is kind of goofy, too. I, I really do. I mean, our, our experience was a lot more fun because we got all the delegates. But, uh, you know, sorry <laughs> and, and about you that. wouldn't under the modern system. You wouldn't no, come close. No, that's right. A and, very and, close split. Yeah, and, I, and you know, I, I, I do think the system is, uh, you know, this whole thing that went on, the caucus system, that's really got to go. I mean, that's something right out of, uh, you know, Baghdad. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, you, you get, what, a point four five seven delegate? Who's that poor person? You know, they've... <laughs> been filleted at the deli counter or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, that's the way the Republican system here in, in Connecticut will work, too. That there will, there will The multiplier effect, they have a rounding system. Yeah, but, uh, so, but you could get 4.5 delegates out yeah. of the at-large total, and that gets rounded up to five. Yeah, it's, it's, it's silly, and, and they, it should just be straight. If we're going to do the delegate system, the way we're going to do it, just, you know— you win, you get all the delegates. Winner take all. Well, let's turn to all those super delegates. That's a whole other issue. We could do I a whole program just on super delegates, and uh, they're not like superheroes like Susan writes about. That no, they're super no. delegates, an entirely different set of Many special skills. Powers, yes. Many different powers. Um, I want to turn to a couple of stories, sad stories about two very well liked people in in government who stepped away from their their jobs after months of questions regarding his fitness to serve following two traumatic brain injuries. State Senator Andrew Maynard has announced he will not seek re-election this year. Ben Duvall, you know Andy Maynard well, and you and you uh, live in that part of the world. This kind of hasn't even stopped the talk about this story because there are questions now about whether or not he should serve out the rest of his term. As someone who knows him and has been following this closely, how does all this strike you? Well, yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I consider Andy one of my closest friends, and uh, I ran his first campaign, the one he lost for the Senate. Well, we laid the groundwork for him to win. Um, this has been a really difficult year and a half. Um, And it's been particularly hard on his family. Uh, I think some of the decisions made by folks in the legislature are unfortunate, to say the least. Um, And I just hope he gets better. That's really what I really care about. But I do think there are some serious questions that are being raised about, you know, uh, the process and a number of processes involved 
in in his uh, uh, ten, uh, his tenor when he's been in the legislature. And, and of course, this this opens up uh, when he says he's not going to run for election. It opens up a seat. Heather Summers says she'll seek the Republican nomination to replace Maynard. This is actually one of the things that that gets to what Ben was talking about about those in the state legislature. Many have accused uh, the Democrats of shielding Andy Maynard, of wanting to make sure he's able to maintain this seat in part so that he could uh, receive some state benefits, but in part because they wanted to make sure that they retained the seat. It's it's kind of this is the next step in a call, a Colin, but it's it's still kind of a, an ugly and sad affair. It is an ugly and sad affair. To me, what has lately been of concern are reports in the day of New London uh, suggesting that what uh, Senator Maynard's lawyer told police is very different from what the Democrats, Democrats at the General Assembly has, have been telling us, uh, saying that he has difficulty reading and writing, uh, that he has difficulty holding on to a thought uh, for any length, protracted length of, length of time. Um, one of the things that would be upsetting uh, that will be upsetting is if it turns out that Senator Maynard really hasn't been able to function independently uh, and to participate fully uh, in the consideration of legislation and the voting on legislation, and that the Democrats are essentially they have that they have been using him as a, a manipulable vote, a vote that they can just sort of deliver without having to deal with a fully function independent, fully functioning independent thinking human being. That's the kind of thing people should get in a lot of trouble for if it's true. And it's there's a fog of war thing. We don't know exactly what's true and what's not. But but if that were to be the case, that would be very upsetting and would raise real questions about Marty Looney's uh, leadership. If, he, if, that, if there's any version of that that's true, it's very disturbing. I, I doubt that there'll be any fallout from it, but it's, it's upsetting. And it, I worry that this is not this whole situation that is continuing on until, you know, the next person is elected. I don't know if this is really fair for his constituents. I don't know if it's fair for him, really, to still be going up to Hartford and doing these, these things. If there's a question about benefits, this, the legislature could vote for those to, to just uh, give those to him fairly easily. Um, and the fact that they have not done that to sort of allow him to retire, to get better, um, I don't know. That makes me wonder. Uh, uh, Turning to another story, uh, this is uh, Connecticut's claims commissioner has resigned after questions surrounding nearly $17 million in compensation to four gang members whose guilty verdicts were dismissed, uh, but not due to DNA evidence like in previous cases. Uh, Here's Senate Minority Leader Len Fasano calling for the ouster of J. Paul Vance Jr. This is a claims commissioner that this governor still has yet to reappoint. It's only there because he hasn't been reappointed yet. And we all know in this building, this is the same claims commissioner that has screwed up the claims in this building. He is not competent to be the claims commissioner. And so now he, he, he steps away and call him. This is another very complicated thing that I think the state legislature will almost have to take up this legislative session. It has to do with who and how you might award money to someone who is found to be wrongfully convicted but not necessarily found to be innocent. There's a, a kind of a donut hole that the claims commissioner is able to uh, uh, to rule on. Um, almost everything points to the fact that the state law is not clear enough to <laughs> to be enforced in this way. What do you see coming out of this? Okay, so the claims commissioner is, it really is one of these sort of, uh, and there's a bunch of them, but this is a really good one, one of these slightly sort of shadowy state offices that people don't understand very well, and for the most part, people don't talk about very much, doesn't come in for a lot of oversight. And there's a, a lot of seat-of-the-pants calculations, a lot of back-of-the-envelope calculations that go on there, as opposed to there having, uh, of, of there being a set of well demarcated rules for how you handle a lot of this stuff. So 
yeah, so Paul Vance, who's also actually a pretty nice guy, Paul Vance Jr., but things got backed up there. Uh, the attorney general's office last year discovered there were 80 cases that had missed their deadline, which, among other things, deprives people – you know, people who might have the right to sue, like somebody who was in a terrible car accident because a branch that was never trimmed over the Merritt Parkway fell down in a car and killed people. I mean, things like that, that, you know, maybe people should have the right to sue. That stuff wasn't being dealt with very well. There's probably a better, well, no, there's absolutely a better way of handling all this stuff than the way that we do it now. I would be a little nervous about having them try to fix it within the scope of a single legislative session. This is sort of a bad cases, make bad laws type of situation. Uh, never stopped us before. <laughs> it's never stopped us before. But you'd really want to take a long, hard look about, first of all, what all the other states do, who has a successful system. Uh, other states have very different systems We're from this. We're an outlier on this one. Yeah. yeah they are. Nobody's system is perfect. Uh, but uh, no one's system is perhaps quite as imperfect as ours is right now. But it's a long look that you want to take. Not a, it's not a knee-jerk thing. And this this office is apparently very understaffed, too, that they're not really funding it very well. So if you're going to have an office that has this kind of a power and, you know, being able to award claims to um, to these men who were not um, not found innocent, but they couldn't actually bring them back to trial because the main witness was dead. Um, this this is very powerful. That's a very powerful thing. And so if it's just him and a paralegal trying to deal with all of these cases and they don't have the money or the staff to do it, that's an issue. And this is a very different sort of case, uh, Ben, than someone who is languished for 17 years in prison, uh, who is found through DNA evidence to have been not guilty of a crime. It seems reasonable that that person should be able to quickly settle with the state to be able to be compensated for that time. That's not the case we're looking at here. That's exactly right. And, you know, as Colin points to, there, there are a lot of these little sort of uh, areas of our state government that, uh, you know, just sort of uh, bumble along and nobody really takes a good look at them and uh, they end up uh, like this, causing a real problem. When we come back from our break, we're going to take a look at what's in the water in Bloomfield, what's in the bottles, or at least how much those bottles are costing uh, on, in the liquor store. And also, should we all just leave Connecticut? I mean, if you listen to some people, everyone's just fleeing the state. Uh, Susan Bigelow says that's not the case. We want to stay here in Connecticut. We're in the wheelhouse where we live. We'll be right back. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to take a look at the history and legacy of American abolitionism in a new book. Also, our own Diane Orson sits down with Yale lecturer Erica Christakis. Last year, an email by Christakis sparked controversy over issues of race and speech on campus. She's also got a new book out called The Importance of Being Little, What Preschoolers Really Need from Grownups. Uh, we're going to bring you those stories tomorrow where we live. Hope you can join us. Today it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. And we're joined by Ben Duvall, who's a freelance political writer and consultant who's launching a new website called Ben There. Love the title. Um, Susan Bigelow is a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com and our own Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Uh, so quickly, let's, let's go to the topic of the water controversy in Bloomfield. Residents in Bloomfield are fighting a plan to open a water bottle plant in their town. Our own Jeff Cohen has been covering it. We've talked about it a little bit on our air, Colin. And I know you've been following this very closely over the course of, of the last this couple of days. <laughs> well, but look, this is an issue that brings together town politics. It brings together this quasi-public agency that controls water in the region, the MDC. 
It has something to do with economic development in town. It also has to do with this precious water resource and an awful lot of people in Bloomfield and the surrounding towns who are up in arms about their ratepayer money going to an out-of-state company, Niagara, who's going to take those uh, that water, put in little bottles, and send it out of state. Yeah, so I got up really early this morning and read every document I could find, everything I could find about this. And it really, it, you know, I mean, you don't know. You don't know if you haven't really kind of lived with the story and, and gone to all the hearings and stuff like that. But from the outside, it really does look as though there might be a Pulitzer waiting out there for somebody who can figure out what's really going on here. Something's going on that's a little out of the ordinary. Uh, and, and in fact, they may be beneficiaries of the fact that we don't have quite the same level of investigative journalism uh, here uh, in Connecticut that we used to have. I, I certainly was a time in the current would have had four or five really good investigators to put on a story like this. So there's some obvious problems. One of them is the people in Bloomfield just didn't know this was happening, that there were there were negotiations going on. They've now been able to FOI emails where Niagara even says, is our name going to come up here at the hearing tonight? Because I don't know if we're really ready for that. And, and that email is happening months and months after Niagara started working with the town. So I, just as a general principle of democracy, if a big company wants to come in and put a water bottling plant in your town, you should know that around the same time that the town council knows it, not months and months and months after. There's something very, very wrong overall with that. And then the MDC part of this, I mean, the MDC, which is a quasi-public agency, is, I mean, they are like the Knights Templar. It's really often very hard to figure out what's going on at the MDC. What they're basically saying is that this exists with them as a request, as a a rate-paying request, that basically we're going to use X amount of water. And, you know, there's a discounted rate that they're eligible for that nobody's ever been eligible for before. But if I'm understanding what Bart Halloran, their attorney, has been saying at public hearings, it's not like there's an executed agreement somewhere. I I, I find that hard to believe, and I would really like to see it if it does exist. But that, but basically, that Niagara just came in and said, you know what? We want a whole boatload of water here, uh, and we don't mind paying for it, so let's go. And the MDC says, you know, we're, we're not using as much water as we used to. We're conserving water, and so we've got to sell water to somebody, Susan. It's just ridiculous. This is, this is a public resource. The reservoir was built to be a public resource. It wasn't built to sell it off a piece at a time to other companies. And isn't that odd that... A bottled water company, which is supposed, they're probably going to market this as being, oh, it's from a pure mountain spring somewhere, when it's really just public water. It's, this is not good. If there's a drought, I mean, we've seen what's happened in California. Our climate is not stable. If there's a drought, if there's a problem, where's that water going to be? But but when uh, representatives of Niagara were on my show, Ben, I mean, what they're saying is, look, yes, this is a plant that's going to bottle water and send it out of state, but there's a lot of other businesses that use an awful lot of water. This isn't the only one. I mean, businesses have to do stuff using water, and they use that same resource. Well, there's two things. First, uh, to back to the MDC, uh, quasi-public. Uh, I do not like that term. I would get rid of them when I'm king because quasi <laughs> me, sounds to me like queasy. Okay, so it's a queasy it's, public. Yeah, queasy, and it, it's actually know. Latin for as if. Well, there you go. So <laughs> that's the problem. It's either public or it's private. Let's get rid of this thing. The other thing about it, though, is when I read the story, there's there's got to be something else to it, right? And so. This also, I hate to be Johnny Wendell, but it gets back to why we have a Donald Trump and a Bernie Sanders. The lack of, of, of just laying it out and saying, look, folks, 
We've been talking to this company, Niagara. They're going to come in and build a bottle plant. These are the benefits to the town. These are the problems. What do you guys want us to do? Because we think this is great, and we're going to take it to the voters and let them talk about it. But they don't do that, and then we end up in this big mess. Well, our, our frequent friend Bill Curry, he writes about this all the time, including this week in Salon. He says that the, you know, the issue is corruption. It's, it's okay. that really there's a political class that gets done, things done a certain way, and it shields the public from it. You're not saying necessarily corruption, but it's just a way that things are done that people well, don't understand. What happens so often, I, I found this in, uh, across the country when I was working for a company doing you know, government relations work, is that so often the problems with government isn't so much that somebody's doing something wrong. It's just that nobody's talking. Nobody's sitting down and saying, this is what we want to do. These are the positives. These are the negatives. And then let's decide. But now you've got this thing where the voters rightly in Bloomfield are upset because something's happening and they've not been brought in. And correctly, also, it's a public resource. But this is, this is a different situation in Bloomfield. This feels different to me because when any sort of large company comes into a town, usually we hear about it. Like I'm thinking of Amazon moving into Windsor. We heard right. about that long before it ever happened, whereas this was sort of presented to the town as a fait accompli, as if it was done already. And, of course, people just exploded over it. Yeah, what do they think they are, a baseball stadium? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. I mean, and and well. we should say they have a tax abatement deal. They will not be paying full boat taxes for at least seven years. Right. So it's, it's, it's clear to, unclear to me what the upside is. The, I don't think these are great jobs for the most part in, in a situation like this. It's a small number of jobs. Small number that of aren't... jobs, a lot of them probably like loading stuff onto trucks. And, and they get this incredible tax abatement picture from Bloomfield. Well, here, here's something that Governor Malloy is trying to make a better deal for Connecticut residents. You know, package store owners are in full force at the state capitol yesterday objecting to Governor Malloy proposal to lower the price of alcohol in the state. This isn't the first time, Colin, that we've heard about the governor trying to say, look, why does booze cost so much? Why can't we buy it on Sunday? I mean, and here he is once again. We talk about him being the liquor governor, but he's he's up against these package store owners. You know, I've known other governors I would have expected to be much more. <laughs> I won't name names, but never mind. Um, he's sort of not that guy. Well, look, this is all about money, I hear. I mean, first of all, yes, the poor small package store owners, they are constantly being assailed. Their way of life is being challenged all the time. We've had this conversation many times before, whether it's Sunday hours, extended hours, these things are much harder for them to meet. And obviously, the minimum pricing, abolishing minimum pricing certainly favors, you know, some of the big players coming in here. And now, of course, I mean, Costco, you know, is, is a big player in both hard alcohol and, and beer and wine. So that's a problem for them. I will say that Governor Malloy will not do anything, and this, including this, that doesn't kind of have a fiscal note attached to it. So this is really all about being able to project out a certain number of new, highly speculative revenues. I think it's $3.3 million or something. But in other words, there's a fiscal note on this proposal that says, well, if this happens, we'll pull in X amount more in taxes because this happened. And, and you know, I mean, it's not like you get to cut off their arm if they're wrong about that. I, I, and we have to spend the last couple of minutes talking with Susan about something. Hey, maybe liquor prices are going down. Another reason to stay in Connecticut, Susan. Absolutely. You've been writing about this. We hear from uh, people in the business community saying it's a bad place to do business. Taxes are going to drive people out of the state. You're making a case in your, in your recent column about, you know, people maybe staying here. <laughs> yeah, and this all came out of a, a poll that um, Gallup did that said that Forty-six percent of the people in this state want are wanting to leave. So, if you're listening in the radio right now, you're probably in a moving van, <laughs> leaving the state, crossing the state line into somewhere else. But this is something that I think has become a real issue for us. We have had so much go wrong. It feels like in the state over the past twenty years or so, we've suffered through recessions, we've suffered through climate events, we've suffered through storms, scandals, political corruption. 
all kinds of terrible things have happened. And so I think that we get in this rut where we feel like we cannot do anything, that there's no no reason to even try to do anything. And anything that we try to do is just going to turn to nonsense and awfulness. And so we have this sort of general misery anyway that's just part of our culture. We're very grumpy people. That's okay. <laughs> but I think on top of that, there is this sort of extra belief that Connecticut is a bad place to be, that there's nothing worth saving here. I don't think that that's necessarily true. There's a lot of upsides to living here. There's education, there's quality of life, there's spectacular parks and scenery, but it's difficult to go against that prevailing notion that Connecticut is messed up in a, in a really important way and that everyone should just, there's no reason to stay, I mean, just, just leave. Are, are we too grumpy here in the state, Ben? I mean, are people really getting in those moving vans? Well, I mean, yeah, I think uh, I think there's something to the sort of the crowd mentality of, you know, oh, yeah, it's good to say everything stinks. But I, I do think that we, as a, you know, the government and the leaders of the state really need to take a look at some of the other states that are doing better financially, uh, job growth, et cetera. No, I'm not talking about Alabama, but I am talking about other states. So we can get from 49 to maybe 30 or 25. But right now there aren't that many other states that are doing all that well. I mean, go around no, and so many states are in deficit. There's a lot of places where the jobs aren't why, coming. Why, why would a car plant go to a South Carolina and not here? I think those are the kind of questions we need to ask and find out why. And everybody, as soon as I say that, people say, oh, it's because of the unions. Oh, it's because of the environment. Well, can we just sit down for a minute and let's go down a checklist on why that doesn't happen? Because I think that there's a lot of positive things about our state that we can offer to companies to come here. Quite frankly, I think there's a lot. Um, but we do have to, I think, maybe trim some of the regulation and certainly some of the taxes. Well, there's certainly a lot of the reason why there. People are going to South Carolina is because the, the, the cost of living is lower um, and the, the weather is better. But, yeah, I, I think that people are leaving because of taxes and because of other things. Certainly when my parents left, at least that's what they say. Um, but I think that there is a, a, there's a lot we can do to make this better. So very quickly, I, I don't believe those polls. Uh, for the most part, what you see is that the people, the states that rank high among people who want to leave are the states that have highly transient populations. So people don't want to leave Montana because nobody in their family has ever not lived in Montana. So they did get a low number there. And yeah, people don't, if you manage to move out to Hawaii, you probably don't want to leave either. But So I, I throw out those polls. But just to, just to amplify what everybody else is saying, look, we can do great in this state, but we, it's easier to get five businesses that have five employees then you know i mean it's, it's easier to target small businesses and Agreed. build up that way it's hard to get somebody to move 200 employees here colin mcenroe hosts the colin mcenroe show on wmpr thanks colin thank you thanks also to susan bigelow who's a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com thank you susan thank you and ben duvall whose brand new website coming up is called ben there thanks ben thank you our program produced by tucker ives with lydia brown our technical producer kion wolf heather brandon's our digital editor our executive producer is katie talarski i'm john dankoski this is where we live.